Well, I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, as we make our way through this book, we come to a new section, the generations of Jacob. And so I'd like to read to us the entire chapter today. So let us uh, once again give ear to God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came, to, came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. We thank you that it testifies to us concerning Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. And we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would speak to us uh, uh, concerning Christ and grant to his faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, with the death of Isaac and with Esau's move to the hill country of Seir, willingly relinquishing any land, any claim to the land of Canaan, Jacob now assumes the role of covenant patriarch, the sole heir, the one to whom and through whom God will realize his promises of a people and a place. You see, God will take the 12 sons of Israel and turn them into a mighty nation. But now as we begin the, the last and the longest section of the book of Genesis, the generations of Jacob, we now get a closer glimpse of the covenant family. And as we stoop in to get a glimpse of the interactions of the 12 sons of Jacob, we see that all is not well on the home front. Indeed, what we find in our passage today is a family that is bitterly divided after years and years of sinful behavior patterns. We've already gotten hints of it in the past, but here we see the hatred boil over into murderous rage. You see, the Lord has a lot to do with this family. A lot of sanctification will need to take place before this family becomes a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And while all the brothers play a part throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, what will emerge as we make our way to the end of the book is really a story of two sons. We will see Joseph as well as Judah as they assume the roles of what will uh, develop into the rest of redemptive history. Well, first we're introduced to Joseph 
in verse 2 of our passage. We're told that he's 17 years old at this, at this point in his life. Joseph, of course, is the firstborn son of Rachel, Jacob's favored wife. And you may recall, Rachel, back in chapter 30, we are told, was barren. Her sister Leah was able to churn out kids left and right, but Rachel was unable to conceive a child. And it's only at the very end of, the, of chapter 30, at the very end of all of these children being born, we read, finally, the Lord heard her prayers and granted her a son whom she named Joseph. And so Joseph, together with his younger brother, Benjamin, who we saw uh, being born last Sunday, uh, those two sons would be Jacob's youngest sons, and thus we are told the sons of his old age. And as is common when uh, when older fathers have sons, they tend to take more of a grandfatherly role. They tend to be more of a doting father. Clearly, this is the case here with Jacob. Uh, oh, sorry, with Joseph. And we are told here in verse 3 that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Here again, we see a pattern of sin rear its ugly head in the covenant family. Jacob's family was torn and divided by the fact that his parents showed favoritism. Uh, Rebecca loving Jacob and Isaac loving Esau. And sadly, we see Jacob repeating that pattern of sin. He did it with his wives, favoring Rachel over his other wives. And now we see him put all of that love and affection and care upon Joseph, uh, his firstborn son with Rachel. And to make matters worse, he gives him this robe of many colors. He, he, he gives him a physical, visible sign of his love and affection over the rest of his other brothers. This robe, uh, which were, which is translated a robe of many colors, uh, perhaps, uh, possibly also be translated a long sleeve robe. The Hebrew word here, we know it's a robe of some kind. The Hebrew word there, uh, here is difficult to translate. But following the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we say it's a, uh, uh, we translate it a many colored robe. But regardless of what the robe looked like, it was clearly a visible sign that designated Joseph as a special son, the one whom the father loved the most, perhaps even designating him as the future ruler, as the one who would serve as the heir of the entire family. And it seems from our passage today that Joseph wore this special robe on any and all occasions. The fact that he's wearing it in verse 23 suggests that he wore this thing all the time. And so not only was it bad enough that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons, but giving him this visible sign must have just particularly galled his other brothers. Joseph doesn't help matters himself when we find in verse 2 that he's a bit of a tattletale with his other brothers. The fact that he was raised with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who of course are Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, as they're out uh, shepherding in the fields, Joseph would run home and give a bad report to his father. Nobody likes a tattletale. And so Joseph is not making, uh, not helping himself uh, with his brothers. And so we see as a result in verse 4 that due to Jacob's inordinate love, this results in his brother's extreme hatred of Joseph. It was so bad that they couldn't even have civil discourse. They couldn't even talk to him. They hated him so much. But guess what? Matters are about to get worse. 
Because we're told in verse 5 that Joseph had a dream. This dream and the one that follows is the first of three pairs of dreams that we find at the end of the book of Genesis that ultimately will foretell future events. And the fact that Joseph gets this dream signals here that he is a budding prophet. He, like his father and grandfather and great-grandfather, uh, is one who is, is privy to divine revelation as he receives this dream. And the fact that it is double, the fact that he has not one but two dreams, means that it is absolutely certain to take place. Well, he received divine revelation, but clearly Joseph lacks common sense. In that when he receives this dream, the first person he th- or the first thing he thinks in the morning is, I'm going to go tell my brothers. This dream, of course, which does, is so obvious, does not require an interpretation. Joseph, uh, without any common sense, blurts it out to his brothers without stopping to consider how they would respond. And he tells them this dream that they were, they were gathering wheat and, and his sheaf stood up and all the other sheaves, all the other sheaves of their brothers bowed down before them, uh, before him. We see the response in verse 8, are you indeed to reign over us? Clearly here, what was uh, this is intended as a cynical, derisive comment. There's no way we're going to bow down to you. And yet what was intended first as a cynical response, this question, will you indeed reign over us, becomes the main question that the rest of the book of Genesis will seek to answer. Who will reign? Who will take the mantle and rule over God's people? Who will exercise that kingly dominion that we saw first and foremost entrusted to Adam in the garden? But of course, he failed to exercise that reign. Who is the one who will come and reverse all the harmful effects of the fall? Who will rule and reign over the rest of God's people. And the fact that the dreams, if you, if you stop to consider it, that the two dreams take place on earth as well as in heaven suggests that the type of reign here is a cosmic reign, one that uh, where, where you reign over heaven and earth. This is the type of reign that was entrusted to Adam in the garden. And of course, he failed. And so who is going to take that reign? Well, Joseph should have gotten a hint after the first instance of him relaying the contents of his dream to his brothers, but clearly he didn't, as as we read that he dreamed another dream, and he said, hey, brothers, behold, I've dreamed another dream. And this one seems to be even worse in that uh, at least Joseph disassociated himself in the first dream where it was his sheaf that was being bowed to. Notice here when he tells the contents of the second dream that it is the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down, he says, to me. They're bowing down to me. Well, even this dream seems to be so bad that even this is too much for his father, Jacob, his doting father, Even he needs to rebuke him and say, son, this dream stuff has gotten too far. There's no way that me and your mother and your brothers are going to bow down to you. Although he rebukes his son, being a man of faith, ultimately Jacob doesn't dismiss the dream like his brothers did. But we read that he kept the saying in mind. It's as if he stashed it away in the back of his mind thinking, maybe. Well, already three times in our passage, 
we were, we've been told that Jacob's, that Joseph's brothers hated him. Three times we're told that they hated him more and more. And in verse 11, we now see the motive. They were jealous. They wanted the love and affection. They wanted the acceptance. They wanted the status that his father had bestowed upon him. And it is out of that jealousy and, and the fact that Jacob, either out of being completely naive or perhaps a little cocky, the fact that Jacob keeps rubbing it in their face makes him just seething with hatred and anger. Well, that's the backstory. Now we, we are told why it is that they hated their brother so much. And that brings us now to verse 12, where we come to a new scene where all of the brothers, at least all of the older brothers, are away from their father, keeping their father's flock up in Shechem, while Joseph remained at home. And in verse 14, we see Jacob call his son Joseph and send him on a mission. He says, go, see if it is well with your brothers. Perhaps it was the return to the infamous location, location of Shechem, where Simeon and Levi had wrecked havoc and destroyed the men of the city. Perhaps it was the return to that location, some 50 miles to the north of Hebron, that Jacob was a bit concerned. He, perhaps he thought that, that other nations would come, as he had feared previously, and destroy his sons and the flock. And so he wanted to send Joseph to be his eyes and ears. And yet Joseph here seems to be oblivious to the danger that he is sending his favored son into, totally blind to the sinful dynamics of his family. It's interesting, he's at peace with the surrounding nations, but ignorant of the war that raged within, within his family. And Joseph's, uh, the sense of uh, Joseph's danger and helplessness is highlighted by the fact that in verse 15, when he comes to the city of Shechem, he can't find his brothers, and we read that he is wandering around in a field for a local man to find him. So as if Joseph is like a lost lamb who needs to be sent uh, in, in the right direction. And it's an interesting encounter that we read of that he, that he had with this man, where the man says, well, what are you looking for? He says, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they've gone? And this man, who just so happened to find Joseph wandering in the field, also just so happened to know of his brothers and also just so happened to overhear their plan to go to Dothan. And so originally what might have struck us at first glance is kind of an odd inclusion in the story. Why do we include this, this portion of Joseph getting lost, not being able to find his brothers and this man sending him in the right direction? Ultimately, we see is a highlight of God's divine hand, his providence at work. Because what would have happened if this man didn't find Joseph? What would have happened if this man didn't overhear the brothers' plans to go to Dothan? Well, clearly, Joseph would have abandoned his quest and would have gone back to Jacob, his father, and nothing would have happened to him. But we see God had other plans in mind. God ordained before the foundation of the, of the world that this man would overhear the brother's plan to go to Dothan and that he would find Joseph and that he would send him in his direction, in the right way, ultimately to his own demise. And that's what we read happened when it, in verse, uh, uh, in verse 17, when Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. 
In verse 18, we have a shift of perspectives. Now we see things from the perspective of the brothers. And as they see this figure walking in the distance coming towards them, they begin to realize it's their brother Joseph. And they're able to recognize him because he's wearing that stupid coat, the coat of many colors. And as they see that, their blood begins to boil. And they recall the dreams that he had, that he had uh, relayed to them. And they are seething with anger. And very quickly, they conspire to kill their brother. They seize this opportunity that they are far away from their father's control, far away from the knowledge and, uh, of, 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 from their, from his father's protection. And they, uh, they resolve to murder his, their brother. We see here that it's ultimately the dreams that set them over the edge, the straw that broke the camel's back. They say in verse 19, here comes this dreamer. Clearly as meant as an insult. Literally they call him Lord of the dreams. Here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. And then we'll see what happens to that dream. We're not bowing down to him. We're going to kill him. And yet, ironically, in their attempt to prove Joseph wrong, in their attempt to make those dreams not come to fruition. Of course, we know ultimately that they set in motion the events that ultimately will lead to the fulfillment of those dreams. But it was Reuben, the oldest brother, who overheard his, uh, his uh, brother's murderous conspiracy, and he speaks up. He says, don't kill our brother. Let's, let's, not, let's not shed his blood. Let's just throw him in this pit here. You see, these pits would, uh, were... Uh, cisterns that are found throughout the land of Israel, which would vary from uh, 6 to 20 feet deep. They were bottle-shaped uh, um, caverns that were cut out of the rock to hold water. Of course, this cistern, we're told in verse 24, was empty. And yet Reuben's plan, at least the one he voices to his brothers, while avoiding bloodshed, would ultimately mean certain and prolonged death for their brother Joseph. And so the brothers think, well, that's a great idea. We don't have to get blood on our hands, but ultimately we can get rid of him and kill him by throwing him in this pit and leaving him for dead. But we're also told that Reuben's suggestion to throw his brother, throw the brother in the pit, uh, ultimately was a veiled and cowardly attempt on his part to save Joseph and to bring him back to his father, Jacob. Now, why would Reuben want to do this? Remember, Reuben is the one who's already insulted his father uh, by sleeping with his concubine, uh, Bilhah. And so perhaps here, Reuben's concern isn't so much out of Jacob's safety, but ultimately is his attempt to win back his father's favor. When he finds that Jacob, that Joseph is not where he thought he would be, he asks his brothers, where shall I go? In other words, I can't go face my father again. And so here, Reuben uh, attempts to save Joseph, perhaps with ulterior motives, but it's a cowardly attempt. You see, when he, as the older brother, as the, as the default leader of the group, when he overheard their murderous conspiracy, he should have rebuked his brothers and, and directly confronted them saying, you will not kill Joseph. You see, rather, he tries to uh, win them over by suggesting a different type of murder. Well, regardless... His brothers liked that idea, and so we read in verse 23 that as soon as Joseph arrived, uh, 
His brothers pounced on him, stripped him of that robe of special status, and threw him into the pit. And as a sign of just how callous they were, as a sign of the fact that they showed no remorse, we read in verse 25 that they sat down and they ate. They sat down and they enjoyed a meal over the cries of their brother Joseph, screaming for help out of that pit, perhaps even eating some of the food and provisions that he might have brought into them from their father. And as they're sitting down enjoying a nice leisurely meal, we read that a caravan of Ishmaelite traders came by. Now this gave Judah an idea. Now, some have suggested here that Judah's suggestion was yet another attempt to spare Joseph's life like Reuben. And yet, when we consider just how cold and calculated his plan is, that is, he gets rid of Joseph, but then also seems to make a profit out of it, it seems to betray the fact. And, And just the bitter irony of the fact that he says, let's not kill him. After all, he's our own flesh. Let's just sell him as a slave into Egypt, which also would probably mean certain death. And here we see Judah, as he speaks up and suggests this plan, we see that Judah's plan also foils Reuben's attempt to rescue Joseph and curry their father's favor. And this will be a recurring theme. Reuben will always try to take the lead. Reuben will always attempt to do something, but he'll do it wrong. And Judah will be able to foil his attempt. So Judah makes this suggestion. The brothers like it. They think, well, that's great. We can get rid of Joseph. We can get rid of this dreamer, but we could also make some money out of it. And so the the traders come by. They sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Uh, You think split nine ways. That's a pretty good profit. And they take Joseph down to Egypt. And then we read in verse uh, 31 that Reuben comes back to rescue Joseph and he finds the pit empty. And so in utter panic, he comes to his brothers and he's asking, where on earth is Joseph? And they're saying, well, we sold him to the traders. And so here we see now they are faced with the dilemma of what to tell their father and and the brothers as as, uh, an attempt resort, resort to deception. And notice what they use to deceive their father. They use article of, an article of clothing, and they use a goat, a slaughtered goat. This should sound familiar. This is exactly what Jacob used to deceive his own father. He used Esau's clothes. He used the goat that was cooked to, uh, in a special way to, to taste like the game, the wild game that his father craved. Here we see... Uh, uh, things being turned on their head. Here we see, yet again, patterns of sin that go from one generation to the next. We see here uh, uh, Jacob's sinful behavior recurring, uh, echoing throughout his sons. As Jacob gets this coat, this special coat that he had made, designating Joseph as his son, as he sees this coat that is torn and stained with blood, and his sons ask him, is this Joseph's coat? Can you identify it? We see Jacob identify the coat and jump to the conclusion that Joseph must surely be torn to shreds. He's grief-stricken, 
and inconsolable. And despite all the efforts of his family, Jacob is resolved to mourn for the death of his son Joseph for the rest of his life. You see, most parents would mourn the death of their child, but then take off the mourning clothes and move on with their life, even though they'll never forget or get over that. They need to move on, and yet Jacob refuses. He refuses to be comforted. He says, I will mourn his death for the rest of my life, which also should have continued to annoy the brothers, right? Because even after death, or at least presumed death, Joseph will continue to haunt them. And yet before the story ends, before we move on to other matters in chapter 38, we are given one quick glimpse of what happened to Joseph once he arrived in Egypt. In verse 36, we read, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Before the story ends, we get a quick update of Joseph, who we read is sold to this man Potiphar, a powerful man with ties to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt. And here we see set in motion a series of events that I'm sure most of us know the end. And yet here we see ultimately as we're reminded of Joseph's fate that the Lord is in control. The Lord is in control. Well, in conclusion, as we consider this familiar and beloved passage of Scripture, we have to consider the fact that the passage does not relay these events from Joseph's perspective. As soon as his brothers see him coming their way in Dothan, we're not told of any response of Joseph. We don't know ultimately what he was thinking as his brothers pounced upon him, stripped him of his robe, threw him into the pit, and then sold him to the traders down into Egypt. But I think we're safe in assuming that he was probably wondering, what on earth is happening? What on earth is happening? How can God allow this to happen? What about those dreams that I got? Those dreams where all my brothers were bowing down to me. This seems to be quite the opposite. I'm not bowing down to me. I'm not ruling over them. They are out for my blood. And yet years later, years later, Joseph could look back at the events of that day and say to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, if Joseph wasn't sold into slavery into Egypt, he wouldn't have been thrown into prison. He wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to interpret the dreams of his fellow prisoners. And ultimately, he wouldn't be able to be brought before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He wouldn't have been able to warn them of the coming year, the seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of drought. And they wouldn't have been able to save proper resources to save the entire known world at the time. You see, Joseph could look back at his brother's Look back at that and say, it wasn't you who sent me. It was God who sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. See, we see God's mighty hand of providence at work that he's even able to take the wickedness of men and turn it for his good and ultimately for the salvation and preservation of his people. 
Something very similar must have happened centuries later as the disciples of Jesus Christ, whose hopes were sky high, were dashed against the stones as their Lord was crucified as a common criminal. Reflecting back on that day, the apostles in Acts chapter 4 said, Truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, with all of the sinful rebellion against our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles were able to look back and say, no, God's hand was at work here. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, as we consider Joseph's mistreatment at the hand of his brothers, we see ultimately how he served as a type of Christ, who the one to come, who was despised and rejected, the one who became our own flesh, came to his own people, but they received him not. And yet it was his rejection. It was his death at the hands of sinful men that ultimately results in the salvation of all who receive Jesus Christ by faith. So even though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so, so we, as we consider this passage today and as we rightly detest the sinful actions of the brothers, we must really stop and consider where we are in this passage. Who was it that sent Jesus Christ to the cross? Well, if we're honest, we must confess it was each and every one of us. It was our sin that held him there. It was our sin for whom Christ died and was rejected. And so ultimately we give thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to come to be born in our flesh, to be rejected by us so that he could preserve us as his people together with him in all eternity. Amen.